Welcome back. The spiritual world is very much a part of Native American culture. All of us will have a chance to experience it next week at the Two Hill on the Umsel campus. An original symphony titled Symphony Chaco, A Journey of the Spirit, will be performed by a cast of 200, including the Umsel Orchestra and Choir, joined by the St. Louis Community College Merrimack Band and Choir. Chaco is a canyon in New Mexico where the ancestors of today's Pueblo tribes once lived. I sat down yesterday with Gary Gaxdetter, music professor at St. Louis Community College Merrimack and the composer of Symphony Chaco. Jim Henry is director of choral studies and associate professor of music at Umsel. Joining us by phone is R.C. Nakai, a much-heralded Native American flutist who will perform Monday. I began by asking Gaxdetter how Chaco Canyon inspired him. It's been a muse for me for many years. Well, everybody that goes out there, they, they say they... They feel something. There's something out there. And it just kept pulling me back and pulling me back. There is something out there. And it, it has sparked many people's creativity because that's what it is. It's a giant act of, of creativity. It's been marvelous. I had no idea it was going to turn into this when I first started this. And it's been rather overwhelming uh, to see what's happened uh, since those first trips out there years ago. When you say you feel something, is that something physical or something spiritual? How would you describe it? Well, it's it's spiritual. It's a very spiritual place. There's nothing else out there. It's just a canyon. There's these huge great houses that they built a thousand years ago, but there's no trees, there's no water, there's no shelter, there's nothing. It's a very quiet place. The indigenous people, the Pueblo people, they, they believe those spirits are still out there. In putting something together about something that is so big and so spiritual, how does the flute work its way into your work? And I ask that because that's a more or less delicate instrument, I would put it, for something so big. I've been listening to R.C. Nakai's music for 30 years. And I think that's where all this started, really, was this interest in Native American thought, and I've been pursuing that for decades. It's something in it really resonates with me about how we treat each other and, and treat the earth. His flute, just that Native American flute sound, let me back up a little bit. They found one of the rooms in uh, one of the largest houses out there was filled with flutes, these four-foot-long, beautiful painted flutes. So I knew that would be, it would be great to have that as an integral part into it. And I tried to weave R.C.'s flute playing into the symphony instead of just putting it on top. It's woven into the tapestry of it. R.C., how would you explain the history of the flute in Indian culture? Well, it depends. If you go back to the Mayan people who were there before, you know, all the other new people began their incursion into the Southwest... They had different kinds of tubular flutes that were made out of whatever materials they could find, and many of them in Chaco Canyon came up from Mexico and other parts of Central America. The flutes, of course, were end-blown, sort of like the ney in North African cultures, and they had three to four to five finger holes. And so it was quite a talent to be able to play those instruments. Of course, the native flutes that I play today are an influence that came from the people in the um, Northeast who watched the um, 
early flute pipe makers who came here from Europe, northern Europe actually, and decided they would try their hand at making a whistle of similar configuration, and so that's what we have today. But the spirit and the, let's say, the intention of the performance, of course, is very personal in nature and deals primarily with um, one's perspectives about being in the world from one moment to the next. What do you make of my comment that the flute seems to be a very delicate instrument for a production that is so big? Well, in that sense, and I have to use a sound system with me on the stage so that I can be heard. But the instruments, of course, you know, they're made in such a way, which is very much unlike the concert flutes, that they don't have a very large range of performance, although they do have the 12-step scale. They don't have very much dynamic control, so I can't play too loud without going out of tune. And I have to maintain a sense of tuning based on what I hear that the orchestra is doing. So the sound system comes in very handy at that point. So I'll be leaning into the microphone or away from it, you know, rather than have the sound tech um, control what I'm doing, which is never very, very reliable anyway. Well, I, I want to hear some of that music in a moment, but first I want to bring Jim Henry into the conversation. When I talk about a big production, Jim, uh, this is big. I, my understanding is we're going to have some 200 musicians uh, involved. That's right. It's really pretty enormous, but I'm really thrilled about it because it's an opportunity. So rarely do we get to do professional collaborations. For the past several years, the UMSL Music Department has done a masterwork in the spring. And we've also, uh, in years past, in groups that I've conducted, done some of Gary Gackstetter's work, which are absolutely unusual and beautiful and very spiritual, very contemplative. And so uh, when we were talking about doing a masterwork in the spring, which last year it was Schubert's Mass in A-flat, so this is quite a departure from the sort of thing we normally do. When I played this piece for my students, they just could not wait to get on the stage. So we're collaborating with the university singers at UMSL and the choirs at St. Louis Community College Merrimack, where Gary is also a faculty member. There's wind instruments. The UMSL Orchestra will be there, normally conducted by Darwin Aquino. Matt Henry, who's our percussion ensemble person, has been a big part of this all along. Gary Brandis, our wind ensemble. There's just a big group of us. So there will be about 100 instrumentalists on stage and a choir of about of about 100. So it will be a full stage. And wow, what an impact that's going to have. My mind is sort of boggled by the notion of bringing yeah. this many people together. Yeah. You all have to start on time and end on time, too. That's That's got to be Well, tough. if we can start the piece together and end it together, that's half the battle, I think. <laughs> Any Aside from the sheer size of it, uh, what other challenges are faced perhaps by the music itself, which is more of a, as I understand it, more reflective of uh, Native American music? Absolutely, and Gary has composed a lot of sort of chant-like things, very, I don't know, there is some sort of Native American chanting that's going on there. Obviously, our students don't have a lot of experience, neither do I as a conductor. So we've had to do some research into that and to learn to sing it as authentically as we possibly can. But it's been a wonderful exploration into some music that we rarely get to sing. And Gary, the challenges for you as a composer, you are not a Native American, but you do have this uh, this feeling that you recall from having, having visited Chaco Canyon. 
Uh, how do you translate that feeling into a different kind of music? Well, I wanted it to be of the canyon instead of about the canyon. And I think that's the big difference. I went out there, I spent days, days and days, where I never talked, I just listened. I went out there with, for the first couple of times with any, no preconceived ideas of what I was going to do or what I was going to write. I just listened. And these melodies started coming to me. And it turns out they came to me in the exact order that they're written, and in the exact keys, for that matter, that the symphony's written in. People that know my work say, wow, that, uh, the Chalco Symphony doesn't sound like anything else you've done. I hope they mean that as a compliment. I, I, <laughs> I can't imagine they mean it any other way. But. but I can't tell you where this music came from. It was the easiest thing I've ever written. It was like taking dictation the whole time. And uh, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. R.C., how authentic is the music to you? Well, based on my experience in the Western European discipline of music, it's fairly authentic, and the storyline that goes with it deals primarily with perspectives of American Indian philosophy. And I would say that Gary did a whole lot of interviews and research about what was going on at that place in its own time, and then how we see it today, and it's, it's very close. It's very close. How much do you know of that place? Well, I was raised right nearby, about 72 miles west, and um, it figures into the southern Athabascan philosophies about whom those people may have been in their time. Of course, as a cultural anthropologist also, we look at the um, freeway, that came all the way from Mexico City and down to Lake Tenochtitlan in um, Guatemala, where the Mayans had trade routes that went up to Chaco Canyon and then spread from there to Mesa Verde and to Canyon Duche and other places in the Four Corners region as it's known today. So knowing that information, both from a historic level in a scientific level, and then including my own tribal communities, stories about what they surmise those people were all about, uh, makes it a very interesting, um, let's say, story about how people survive and change over time. What was the most active, uh, active time in that part of the world? I would say probably about eight to 900 A.D. to about... 1200 A.D. And about that time, I think what was occurring was also a severe drought. You look out from the mesas and you see an expanse of red sand, sagebrush, juniper, and pinyon trees. But in the old days, we believe that it might have been much more green and, and they were able to utilize the environment in such a way that they could survive successfully until the water went away. Got to have water. There's no question mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, it reminds me, from what little I've, I've read of it, it reminds me a lot of the civilization we had right here and across the river in Cahokia. It's, it's interesting that um, Cahokia was going on approximately the same yeah. time and they were also building the medieval cathedrals in Europe. So everybody was 
building toward the sky at the same time. Yeah. Well, right. The, the mounds, of course, in Cahokia are very well known. Uh, R.C., my impression is that the mounds were a big part of that, uh, of that canyon life as well. I'm sure they were, you know. I mean, they're still excavating here and there and finding new dwellings and new, um, let's say, building sites and things. But what hasn't been found yet, and maybe it is there or it's been taken down, are small pyramids and standing stones, which seem to appear in every culture before the, let's say, 1100 A.D., And so that means if they do find those, that there was a lot of um, intercultural communication between peoples of the planet. So that would make it an even more interesting um, way to understand what Chaco Canyon represents. Jim, I'm going to turn back to you, but I'm assuming here that Gary and R.C. are more conversant with that history in that place perhaps than you are. But what have you learned as you've been associated with this project? What have you learned about that and what about this place and what has it done to you? Well, I'll tell you, I, I have an embarrassing admission, which is I had not ever heard of Chaco Canyon before this came about. So when Gary started talking to me about it, I was really uh, clueless about the whole thing. So it's funny, my entry into the Chaco Canyon was Gary Gackstetter's composition. It's, you know, we started learning it, and uh, Gary was kind enough to send a lot of materials. He said, there's a DVD uh, uh, that's narrated by Robert Redford, which is very educational. And I have just fallen in love with it, having never been there. And I sort of feel like maybe I'm the best audience member right now because I've, I've learned about the piece through the music. And the music has moved me so much that I, in some ways, when I see the pictures, I, th- I say, yeah, that picture is exactly what this sounds like. Uh, so the, the sound of Gary's interpretation of Chaco Canyon uh, was really my introduction to it. And boy, it's a nice way to actually be introduced to it, to be honest. And, and how is the music different from your perspective? Well, it just, you know, again, um, I'm not an expert on authenticity, but I, but R.C. definitely is. And, you know, I think what he said, it feels so authentic to me. But beyond that, there's there are lyrics in there. There's a lot of chanting, but there's also some lyrics in there. And we were conducting, uh, Jerry Myers is the, is the choral director there at Merrimack, we had a joint rehearsal with just the choir the other day. And when the groups came together for the first time, and people who didn't know each other, but we started singing about we are one spirit, we are one, you know, and that this word one, and we started chanting in, in the room, one, one, we are one, because we're people co- that come from so many different walks of life. And yet we started singing this music, and it just brought us together in a very spiritual way. And, uh, if that was the first rehearsal, I can only imagine the magic that's going to take place on stage. I want to listen to some music that will kind of give us a taste of what we're talking about. We don't have your music yet because uh, we just don't have access to it at the moment. Recorded it. <laughs> right. But we do have some music uh, performance uh, by uh, R.C. And from what I understand, R.C., correct me on this, we're talking about the uh, Daybreak Vision. Is that correct? Right. This, too, is, uh, again, correct me, reflective of a canyon someplace? It's actually reflective of what we would do as we do our morning prayers. And so the flute melody comes from the 
let's say, the influence of the environment, birds, animals, you know, other things, the wind making noise, and the realization that the ground actually rumbles all the time. So if one is inside a small canyon or one of the small traditional houses, um, you can actually hear or feel something that could be akin to very, very subtle earthquake movements. And then at the same time, one is chanting about the return of the sun and how everything comes back to life again. So the darkness goes away, the rest period, the sun returns, actually the earth's spinning brings the illusion that the sun is returning and it is my own interpretation of what I would feel if I were doing this chant in the morning. Let's have a listen and see uh, see what all of this sounds like. Marcina Kai's Daybreak Vision. What a pleasing and mellow sound. R.C., I can really sense how it can put someone in a very special place. Oh, yeah. Um, I get comments, letters, emails, all kinds of information from people who respond to it in their own personal manner. All I have to say to them is, well, it was just for you. <laughs> you know, a, a wonderful sound for meditation, I would think. It just really does something. I, I know my blood pressure is not what it was when we started all of this. <laughs> Gary, uh, is, is this kind of the sound uh, that you're you're going for on, on Monday? Yes. There's uh, places where R.C. is improvising. There's places where he's the orchestra and the flutes are echoing him. There's places where he's woven right into the sound. There's places where he's chanting uh, with the choirs. Uh, yeah, it's it's that kind of... There's some real loud, fast pieces. There's some real meditative pieces. There's other things. There's even one that's kind of funny, actually. So When you listen to the whole thing, it really does... It's There's almost a narrative, you know. It really takes you on an, on an exploration. How, how do you get a chorus, a, mm. a choir, to do the chanting? 
You know, it's funny. We just, we really approach it like we would approach any form of music. You know, you try to get the right tone. You try to get the right kind of word sounds and try to get everybody to sing together and, and sometimes to not sing together, to sometimes really just let their voices be a little bit more raw. And so a lot of it is just, in some ways, it's improvisational too because we have to try out different sounds and see which ones sort of work for this moment of the piece. I may add to that that... uh, Jim's a master at this. I, I heard his groups play at uh, MMEA back in January, and it was just phenomenal. And my my jaw was on the floor afterwards. <laughs> and just getting watching him rehearse the choirs uh, last week was uh, I learned and was very inspired by it. So yeah, it's it. it he takes him on a, a journey. This it's been a journey for you as well, hasn't? Oh, it? absolutely. Yeah. it's been wonderful. There was some reference earlier on in this conversation to stories you are telling uh, mm-hmm. in this. In the, what what kind of stories are we talking about? They're in their fourth world, and they're on a migration. They the, being? The, the ancients, This is okay. we are in the fourth world now. There were three worlds below. They have emerged from the underworld into the light. And Chaco was part of finding the center of their world. And that from 800 to about 1250, Thousands of people came from all over the place, different kinds of people, probably spoke different languages. They had to haul in materials. They hauled in a quarter million logs from 50, 60 miles away, never touched the ground, that kind of thing. And then in 1250, they walled it all up and left and spread out through Colorado, Utah, Arizona, down into Mexico. There's 500 other tiny Chacos after that. They call them outliers. Mm-hmm. So it's an amazing thing. And they, they still call it, they, they're still on their migration. This is, this is what, they're, that's what they do. And their concept of time and the way they treat the planet and the way they treat each other, we could really learn from some of this. All reflected in the music. Yes. It's reflected beautifully. Gary just does a wonderful job of capturing all of that. It's amazing that he is able to do that orally, what he just said with, you know, yeah. what he just said verbally, he, he captured orally with his music. It's, a, it's really something. We're going to have to wrap this up. I'll ask each of you for a final thought about all of this, starting with you, R.C. Do you have any final thoughts about what you're involved in on Monday? Yeah, I'm hoping it'll be much bigger than what we did when we first premiered it. So I've been working on it extensively for the past three weeks, first thing to play in the morning, and then get these thoughts of what it sounds like and what Gary has done and, you know, and what's going to be going on as we perform the piece. It's something that's very special because it's also, I think, for me, a voice of the American Indian in the present-day context of either the Western European discipline of music or in the ongoing development of American Indian instrumental music and vocal music into the 21st century. So there are all these different allusions and information that I'm getting from this piece. Sounds wonderful. Jim, how about you? What's uh, what's your final thought? You know, my 
<laughs> my overriding emotion is just gratefulness. I'm just grateful that we've had the opportunity to be a part of this. I, Gary's music is beautiful. We've had a chance to listen to RC's music on recording, and, and we can't wait to hear it live, my students and me. And, and I just am so grateful that Gary trusted me and, and the other others, ones of us who are involved in this to carry forth this voice that he has. It has been a journey, a journey of the spirit, which is sort of the, you know, <laughs> it's sort of title. part of the title. So, uh, and it really has been that for us. So we're just grateful for the opportunity. And I just would have to say, if you're listening to this, you really should come. This will be so unusual, and I think that you'll leave a different person. It will have to be very fulfilling for you, I'm sure, Gary. It's very humbling, yes. Yeah. It's uh, overwhelming. Uh, I would like to invite everybody to... Uh, the activities we have, if you don't know anything about Chanco or if you want to learn more, on Saturday and Sunday at Merrimack, uh, we have Jim Iber with pottery. We have David Patterson Silverworth doing drumming. We have George Crawford, who is an art professional archaeologist. Cindy and Carl Clark are doing photography. Deborah Taffa is a Laguna Pueblo uh, Indian who teaches at WashU. One of our narrators, by the way, for the concert Monday is uh, William Least Heat Moon, the ah. author who wrote uh, Blue Highways. He'll be joining us. All of this is going on Saturday and Sunday at, uh, at Merrimack, STLCC Merrimack, 11333 Big Bend, and it's all free and uh, open to the public. The concert is Monday, the 23rd, in the Two Hill at 7.30. It's free as well. Besides the music and our Carlos Nakai and all the groups playing, there's going to be projected graphics that uh, Mike Swoboda's students that uh, has taken Cindy and Carl Clark's photography and animated it. So it's like what there's going to be movies going on uh, during the during the music. So it's going to be it's quite something. Thanks to Gary Gaxtatter, Jim Henry, and R.C. Nakai. Symphony Chaco will be performed Monday at 7.30 at the Two Hill on the Umsel campus. You can learn more about Chaco and see pictures of it at Chaco Canyon Project on Facebook.